Hey, welcome everyone. I'm Don Newton, host of Open Air on KPOV 889 FM, High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. Airing Wednesdays at 5 p.m., Open Air is a weekly one-hour entertainment talk show featuring conversations with authors, local youth, entertainers, sports figures, and more. She's a real woman with a real life. She's someone you can relate to. Open Air with Don Newton. Welcome, everyone. This is Open Air, and I'm your host, Don Newton. My guest today is acclaimed journalist Mark Fullman. He joins me to discuss his book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Eight years in the making, Trigger Points illuminates a way forward at a time when the failure to prevent mass shootings has never been more costly, and the prospects for stopping them never more promising. Fullman examines threat assessment work throughout the country. He goes inside the FBI's Elite Behavioral Analysis Unit and immerses in an Oregon school district's innovative violence prevention program, the first such comprehensive system to prioritize helping kids and avoid relying on punitive measures. With its focus squarely on progress, the story delves into consequential tragedies and others averted, revealing the dangers of cultural misunderstandings and media sensationalism along the way. Ultimately, Fullman shows how the nation could adopt the techniques of behavioral threat assessment more broadly with powerful potential to save lives. Mark Fullman, it's great to talk with you. We're talking today about your book, your new book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. You know, just doing some research on just you, Mark Fullman. You are a longtime journalist and national affairs editor for Mother Jones. Since about 212, I was reading in your bio, you um, have done various investigations into gun violence and its impact on American society. What drew you to that? What was it that brought your interest to gun violence? Yeah, well, it was a subject in general that I had done reporting on as a journalist over the years. Um, but I became more focused on and interested in investigating the problem of mass shootings in the United States as that problem was seeming to escalate in the early 2010. Um, and in 2012, which was a particularly awful year for this problem, that was the year that the, um, there was the massacre in the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado that summer. And then there were several more through the fall. And then Sandy Hook Elementary the mass shooting there in, in Newtown, Connecticut happened that December. So at that point, I had really become focused on this issue and trying to understand it better. Um, I realized pretty quickly as I was digging into it a couple things. One, there wasn't good data available publicly. Um, nobody had really produced any kind of comprehensive uh, database or analysis of this particular type of, of violence. And, and that was somewhat startling to me because, of course, we've had these for a long time. So the first thing I did was set out to build a database, which I, I did with uh, Mother Jones, and uh, began to just collect data on these cases going back 30 years to, in order to analyze them and try to understand better what's going on with them um, and learned a number of, of um, quite interesting and I think very telling things about the nature of the problem. Well, you know, in looking just my own history of with mass shootings, I think my first experience was here locally in Oregon in 98, Kip Kinkle 
Thurston yep. High School in Springfield, and and when that happened, so that was in 1998, and then we, and then 1999 comes Columbine, and then and then all of the ones, you know, just looking at the historical of mass shootings, the timeline, it's it is it's incredibly disturbing. What's making it happen? What is it with the behavior? Because I was thinking, you know, when I was in high school and grade school, we didn't have those situations, at least not that we were aware of. And so what has, as, as your book is titled, Trigger Points, what is triggering this? What has changed? There's a lot of finger pointing to, to games, to politics, to things. But what about the accountability, the behavior? Where is it starting, especially with children? Yeah, there's certainly some broader questions about cultural and political in America as to why this problem has grown. Um, and it has escalated. You're right that of decades ago, while these happened, they weren't happening as frequently. Um, I think we're also more aware of them now in, in the digital media age. We can talk a little bit more about that. Um, that does have an effect on the problem as well as I, as I uh, discuss in the book. Um, I'm glad that you pointed out the Thurston High School uh, mass shooting from 1998. I'm sure that's of interest to your listeners. And that's an important case in uh, the development of behavioral threat assessment which is the prevention method that the book focuses on, um, in Oregon. There, there's the Salem-Kaiser School District in Salem was one of the pioneers of doing this work in Salem, and they began their program after Thurston. They, they started looking into it because of that traumatic event there in Oregon. And then after Columbine happened the following year in 1999, the Columbine mass shooting, then there was a really big push to develop this uh, prevention method for schools. Um, and, you know, a case like Thurston was sort of eclipsed historically by Columbine. People tend to think now broadly of the school shooting era beginning with Columbine. But, of course, what happened in Oregon the year before was a, a big deal and very traumatic um, and is part of the sort of origin and development story of this work. Um, so to your question about, you know, the escalation of the problem, it's, it's hard to answer in some ways, but I, I think that um, one of the issues is that the way that we see and share information about mass violence has changed a lot in the last couple of decades with the advent of digital media and with social media. And there are some additional layers of complexity to the problem that speak to the behavioral issues. And the work of this field really focuses on that. It's, it's, it's an intervention model that focuses on the behaviors and circumstances leading up to attacks. So while it may be difficult to answer the question of why this is happening in any given case or, or why it may be happening more, if, if we understand better how it's happening, then we can take steps to prevent it. Because there's a window of opportunity to intervene. These are planned attacks. They don't happen impulsively. Um, that's one of the big myths we have about mass shootings that we see continually repeated, um, that the idea that these are people who just snap and go insane and then impulsively commit an attack. But that's not true at all. In all of these cases, these are people who are developing a violent idea based on anger, grievance, depression, suicidality, any number of uh, mental and behavioral health factors and circumstantial factors, and then making plans and, and preparing and then carrying out an act. And so while that sounds all very heavy and grim, therein also lies the hope of this prevention work because there's a period of time preceding these attacks where there are behavioral warning signs that are identifiable, especially to trained experts in the field of threat assessment. And if 
we identify it, we can get in the way of it before it happens. When you say that there are signs that are noticeable that can be seen, are they being ignored or do we not recognizing them? Or are we thinking, oh, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that person that makes the call and then I find out I'm wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's some of both historically. I think that part of the way that this field of behavioral threat assessment is, is advancing and trying to grow is by creating broader cultural awareness of what the warning signs are. Because this is really a community-based violence prevention model, so it requires public engagement. And most cases, most threat cases that are successfully prevented begin with information from an ordinary citizen, a a student in a school or a a worker in a company who becomes concerned or fearful of someone acting in ways that are unsettling or causing anxiety. And, you know, that's not always easy to see. So it's always easier to see in hindsight. I mean, we read the stories of, of mass shooters afterwards in the media, and it sort of looks like, oh, you know, how did, how, how did people not recognize this is coming? And, and conversely, we often hear the comments from people who are close to a perpetrator. You know, I never could have imagined he would have done this. He was such a quiet guy, and um, nobody could have seen this coming. But that's also not true. There are these signs. So to your question, which is a really important one for this work, how do we better notice and identify the warning signs? Um, part of that is broader awareness. And then also, as, as you suggest, there are real inhibitors to it, too. Um, I think, you know, it's difficult to see a friend, a, a, you know, a, a classmate or a coworker or, or one's own family member as dangerous and to then take steps to try to get that person help to report them to a person in a position of leadership or authority who is, in, is able to do that. Um, uh, specifically with a threat assessment program if it exists within a school district or a community. Um, so that's a high bar. It's, it's, um, you know, it requires a certain level of public awareness of, of what this approach is and, and trust in it. Trust that the process will be fair and constructive. And that's a really important fundamental aspect of this work, too, of, of the approach that behavioral threat assessment uses. Intended in its ideal form to be constructive, and it's not punitive. Um, there are cases where that's not possible, where you do see um, threatening subjects subject to arrest and prosecution. But ideally, we're talking about early intervention and constructive intervention that gets people onto a better path, that helps them with the the deep problems they're having, that is leading them down this what the field calls the pathway to violence to planning and thinking about a violent attack as, as their way to resolve their problems. And I think that speaks to your question too earlier, you know, what is it about America culturally that makes that something of a valid idea for people, that, that committing an act of violence like this is somehow a solution to their suffering or rage or despair? Um, it's, it's a troubling question, but I think the reality and sort of practical matter at hand is that we need to understand better that this is what's going on with the people who do this. If we kind of demystify the problem in this way, we're, we're in a position to understand it better and therefore reduce it more effectively. Talk to Mark about the research. You had access to some of the leaders of FBI's elite behavioral analysis unit, top mental health experts. Talk about those resources and, and how that was navigated when you were writing the book. Yeah, so as, as I was developing the database work in 
the early 2010s that I described earlier, um, I started learning about the existence of this field, which largely goes on sort of behind the scenes and is relatively little known to the general public, even to this day. Uh, back then, it was virtually unknown. Um, and I was very intrigued uh, by the notion that there are dozens, maybe even hundreds of, of threat cases of potential mass shootings that are being stopped successfully. What is that all about? So I started digging into that and asking around and trying to find my way into it. It took quite some time. Um, as you can imagine, these are sensitive cases and sensitive subject matter uh, dealing with mental health issues and dealing with law enforcement, particularly with the FBI. Um, you know, they're, they're a national version of this model, but it also uh, exists locally in many places, and, and there's partnership going on sometimes between the two. Um, so I was able to, over time, gain access to the, some of the leaders and pioneers of this field uh, through the work that I had been doing to, to more deeply document and analyze the problem of mass shootings, in part, I think, because it hadn't been done publicly at all. Um, there was some private research going on within the context of mental health and law enforcement. Um, but I think, you know, they saw value in that and, and saw that my interest was really to try to understand this problem in a broader way to kind of get past the, um, you know, the familiar discussion and debate and arguments that we have in this country about gun regulations and mental health. And we sort of go round and round in circles with the same debate. But I became very frustra frustrated with that early on, as I think many people are, and for me, the question was really sort of fundamentally simple. What more can we be doing about this problem? Surely there must be other ways that we can go about understanding it and solving it. Um, and so that, that led me to some of the opportunities to um, get to know the work of the FBI leaders and, and some others who have led the way with this field. Well, and talk to about the myth-busting narrative that you discovered and kind of blow up in the book. What were the, some of the most glaring that we, we, the public, are most susceptible to? Yeah, the, so the research into these cases, both my own and, and what the field has done through the decades, shows some very um, clear things that, that are, are very different than what we understand this problem to be um, in, in, ter in terms of the general public and things that are repeated about it in the media. Uh, one of the big myths is that this is all caused by mental illness. I think the way that people understand that is they take that to mean that everyone who commits a mass shooting is totally insane, is hearing voices in their head, is hallucinating, um, has acute clinically diagnosable mental illness. And that's just not true. In the majority of cases, that is not a factor. That's not present. Now, anyone who commits a mass shooting is not someone who is mentally healthy. I think we can we can acknowledge that. I mean, these are people who have lots of problems with mental health and behavior and circumstances in their lives. But the research shows that in most cases, they don't have clinically diagnosable mental illness. And even in cases where it is present, it's rarely a primary cause of an attack. Uh, it's rarely what is driving a person to plan and go out. And as I said earlier, that's, it's, it's much more often based in, in an entrenched grievance or ideological extremism, or anger, or desire for revenge, or justice, or, or in a lot of cases, just as a sort of desperate way out through suicide. I discovered early on in my research that uh, the majority of mass shooters are suicidal and commit suicide as part of their act. 
um, either by turning a gun on themselves when they're about to be apprehended or dying in a shootout with police. The term for that in, in the field is called suicide by cop. They know that they're going to die at the end of, of the attack in that way. So um, the way that we understand the mental health component of this is really uh, skewed um, in terms of the, the myth that we keep repeating that, you know, the idea that mental illness is responsible, that mental illness pulls the trigger. It's just not true. And furthermore, that's counterproductive to understanding the problem, and it's very damaging. It's stigmatizing for people who do suffer from clinically diagnosable mental illness conditions like that, um, the vast majority of whom are not violent. There is a long body of research, scientific research, showing that. One thing we do yeah. hear, too, Mark, is we hear quite a bit, uh, or the general consensus. The comments are typically blame the parents. It starts in the home. How do we talk about that, or how, do, how should we be viewing that? Because that seems to be a broad brush explanation. Yeah, I think it's a really good question that speaks more to the circumstantial factors of these cases and, and also to the prevention of them. You know, something that comes up a lot, especially with school shootings, is access to firearms and, and kids having access to the home. Most school shootings are, are carried out with firearms that, that um, a, a young person will obtain from their home or from the home of another person. Um, so that speaks to the question of regulation and legal responsibility, um, safe storage laws for guns, keeping your guns locked up, um, or potentially making parents responsible legally for violence of this nature committed by a child that they're responsible for. And that's a very contentious issue from state to state uh, in how it's regulated. I think, you know, this is, this is back on the radar again with what happened in Michigan last November, the Oxford High School shooting. It's a very stark case in this respect, in the role and the alleged role of the parents who seem to really neglect a, a, a very bad situation with their son and his uh, signs of his worsening trajectory and, and even put, potentially enabled it. Um, you know, we, we don't know yet. They've been charged with involuntary manslaughter, which is um, unprecedented in a, in a school shooting case. And it'll be determined in a court of law whether or not they're legally responsible criminally for what happened. Uh, but of course, you also have civil lawsuits over cases like this, too. So I think that's a really important aspect of this. It also speaks to warning signs and prevention. If, if you're talking about a family situation where the family isn't going to be helpful and may even be unhelpful or, or um, worsening the problem, then the, the challenge is that much greater for the prevention model to try to see what's happening and get in the way of it before it's too late. How long did it take you to write this book? When did you start doing your research? <laughs> the answer to that depends <laughs> on a certain sense. It began with the, the database work that I started a decade ago. But I learned about behavioral threat assessment in 2013 and began really looking into it then and actively developing the book a little bit after that. So I describe it as, as spanning eight years, the process of the book itself, um, in terms of the reporting and research I was doing as a journalist for Mother Jones, and then um, developing more into this book project. So during that time, there was continued, unfortunately, more shootings that yep. you experienced while you were doing your research. How many shootings that we are not aware of maybe have been stopped with doing this work, Pathway to Violence, the FBI, since they put some things in place or have been working at, is there things that have been stopped that we aren't aware of? The short answer is yes 
quite a few. The, the more specific answer to that question gets into interesting territory. Through all of my research and reporting on this over the years, uh, I've come to conclude that, that I, I think there's a strong case to be made that dozens and possibly hundreds of these have been stopped um, throughout the country over the years. It's, it is tricky to show results because success with this model is essentially proving a negative. Um, the absence of evidence, meaning a violent outcome, the absence of a violent outcome is success. It's hard to prove that you've really stopped violence if violence doesn't occur. Um, and yet, there are many cases that I've looked at myself in, in confidential case files and talked at length about with threat assessment leaders who've handled cases like this where uh, very, there's a very clear pathway developing toward a violent attack. We're talking about people who are angry, going, despairing, suicidal, going through a lot of problems, signaling either implicitly or explicitly through comments or writings that they're planning this, taking steps to prepare for it, in some cases getting access to weapons, surveilling a target site, um, you know, cases where it is pretty clear, about as clear as you can get, that this would have resulted in an attack but for this kind of intervention. Um, there's a really good analogy one of the leaders in the field likes to use to, I think, as another way to sort of think about this, which is to compare it to cardiology and the issue of heart attacks and, and heart disease. You know, cardiologists, they can't, they can't tell you whether all of the patients they treat would have had a heart attack uh, if they hadn't have intervened the ways that they did, but they can do a lot to mitigate that danger, to reduce the probability of their patients having a heart attack by intervening in the ways that they, they do medically. And I think that's, that's kind of a good way to think about this, too, um, in terms of the proof of results. And, Mark, in your research, were you able or did you have an opportunity to interview survivors of mass shootings or any of the perpetrators? I did not end up interviewing any perpetrators. It was something that I was pursuing and thinking about for quite a while. And the book kind of took me on a different trajectory over time uh, because I really wanted to focus as much as I could on the people who had developed this field and who do the work. Um, there, it's really quite an interesting group of people and a very diverse group of people. And I, I have a number of different characters in the book that reflect that. Um, and also because the field's own case literature and deep research has a lot of interviews with perpetrators. And I do use a lot of that in the book. So I didn't really need to go out and, and recreate that myself, um, which is a, a, a quite a... Um, complex and time-consuming pursuit, um, you know, trying to get access to people in prison and, and so forth. Um, but then also, as you suggest, I, there are several mass shooting survivors who have gotten involved with this field, some really extraordinary people with really interesting stories. One who I write about at length in the book is a young woman named Christina Anderson, who was shot and severely wounded in the Virginia Tech mass shooting back in 2007. Really poignant story. I mean, she, she nearly died. She was in a classroom where 11 of her classmates were murdered and a teacher survived that, went back to school, recovered, graduated. Just a remarkable story of resiliency. And I got to know Christina through this work. And, you know, the Virginia Tech mass shooting was such an important kind of landmark case in terms of the rise of this problem, but also in terms of the development of research in the field to understand better what led to it. There was a big effort that that set off at the federal level and with the FBI specifically to build a, a bigger threat assessment research and um, practitioner operation. And Christina Anderson had gotten 
involved with the field as a public speaker. She was starting to tell her story in, at threat assessment trainings and trying to help spread awareness of warning signs, as well as focusing on better preparedness and response and recovery when this happens on college campuses. And she was just a remarkable speaker to watch. And I learned a lot from her about issues around this problem from her experience. And then I also had been intending to investigate the Virginia Tech mass shooting more. And I write about it at length in the book because there's more to that case that the public has not known about that tells us more about what led up to the attack and how it could have been prevented. And Christina was also very interested in that, too. We ended up doing some of that work together. We were able to go to to uh, Library of Virginia in Richmond and dig into an archive materials around the case investigation that had been sealed for a decade. And they were unsealed in, in the late 2010s, and uh, we were able to go there and, and dig into them and learn more about the case. So that really added a lot to the book, and it's just a really remarkable story that was a real privilege for me to be able to tell. Well, the work, is, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, peeling back those layers, and that's what I would encourage readers, listeners, all of us to do, is to be more curious about this and, you know, not necessarily just stay tuned to the sound bites that we see because as you said, the Virginia Tech, there's much more to that that we aren't aware of. And I hope that we get curious about those things that we aren't being made aware yeah. of. And I should add, that's also true about the Thurston High School mass shooting back in 1998. And I do write about that case at length in the book, too, in the context of the Salem-Kaiser program, which also has a couple of big chapters in the book, how their program works. So I encourage all of your listeners there in Oregon to check it out because there's a lot in the book that is specific to Oregon that I think they may find quite illuminating. And as you suggest, it's really about demystifying this problem. You know, we treat, we dismiss it as this like senseless tragedy that we can, can't explain and can't really do anything about. And that's just not true. We can make sense of it. And that's what I've really tried to do with this book. Well, the book is Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Mark Fulman, where can we find the book and learn more about you and your work? The book is available online. Uh, Trigger points. It's uh, HC from HarperCollins, hc.com slash trigger points. Um, you can just Google my name and trigger points and you'll find it. It's available from all the booksellers. So whichever people prefer to use, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, Books a Million, so on and so forth. And hopefully at your local bookstores as well. And I'm on Twitter at Mark Fullman, uh, one word at Mark Fullman. Um, that's where I'm most active on social media and uh, posting updates about the book and, and other issues that I follow. Again, I appreciate this time and this work. It's fascinating, and it it's a, it really is, a, in my opinion, a must-read if we want to start looking at what's going on in our world today, peeling back those layers, and, and that we can make a difference and we can impact what's happening. Thank you so much. It's great to talk with you. Open Air is written, produced, and hosted by Don Newton. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and our program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.